don't know how you feel about authority, but Australians have traditionally had a fairly ambivalent relationship with authority. Indigenous Australians, of course, have struggled under the authority of settler governments, but settler Australians as well have been blended with convict types, and uh, we have always had a very healthy disregard for authority in this country, which made recent compliance to COVID restrictions quite remarkable, I think. It was really strange how compliant we all were very, very quickly. But I thought it's fascinating to think about this area of authority because Jesus taught as one with authority. So we're going to think about that. Now, there's different kinds of authority. There's extrinsic or external authority, which I'm sure we're all very familiar with. Anything from governments to courts of law to police forces or even doctors, professors, engineers, people who either can force us to do something because of their authority or they're just better informed than we are, so we defer to them and say, you're the boss, we'll do what you think. This is a kind of extrinsic or external authority because it comes from beyond us and comes to us and we kind of submit to it. In contrast to that, you can have an intrinsic or internal kind of authority when we have such a strong conviction about something that we feel internally compelled to do that thing or follow that thing. We're not directed by any external directives at this point. We are compelled by internal forces, our passion or desire. That's what kind of wins the day at the time. And then there's a third kind, I think, which is a bit of a hybrid here. I would describe it as internalised external authority. We can observe this in another man that gets a mention in Mark's Gospel a few chapters on. Very, a few similarities to the story we're reading this morning. It's in chapter 5 and it's a different man with a different unclean spirit. I'm going to read it to you, Mark chapter 5, the first 10 verses. They came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. Jer- I don't know how to say that one. Gerasenes, I think. Um, when he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And Jesus had, uh, and this man had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. And no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him and shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have to do with each other, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? And the man said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore Jesus earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, as far as we can tell about this guy, this man was someone who was condemned by the crowd, but the actual crowd wasn't there 
anymore. He'd escaped the actual people, but he had internalized those condemning voices. They were possessing him, as it were. He had avoided being stoned by the mob, but he was effectively stoning himself, gashing himself against stones in his rugged environment. The external authority of his condemnation had been internalised and become very powerful in his life indeed, pretty much irresistible. And this clearly can be a very unhealthy thing. But depending upon who we're listening to, it need not be a bad thing. So that's an example of a bad situation where an external authority has been internalised. But we as disciples also listen to an external authority. We listen to the teachings of Jesus, don't we? And these teachings resonate in our hearts and we want them to become internalised to us. That is to say, we sincerely desire to do life in the way that Jesus calls us to. The first step is to respect Jesus' authority as he speaks to us extrinsically, Obeying Jesus' call to love others as ourselves just because he says so is a really good start, right? Plenty good in itself. But as we live this teaching, hopefully we allow it to genuinely permeate us so that our desire becomes similar to that desire we hear in Jesus' teaching. In a sense, we begin to not simply do what we're told to do, we do what we desire to do because our hearts are being changed. We realise it's the richest way to do relationship, to love one another, etc. Even when it's not easy, when somebody's behaving in ways that we would repudiate, we can learn to love them and that kind of thing. When I was a young Rev starting out in my first church 25 years ago or so, I was faced with the task of renewing an aged congregation where there was about a dozen people and the average age was probably around 75. So I came in looking very much like their grandson as their leader. I did my creative best, um, and the problem was that whilst the older people wanted to see the church renewed, like most of us, they didn't want to see anything change either. So it's a difficult bind to be in. Whenever I made what I felt were very modest or subtle changes, I faced rebuke and correction, and things got testy more than a few times. It was just too many generations apart, I think, between me and these people. I found it increasingly difficult to know how to love some of these people. But I did love them. I tried my hardest and I worked at it. And even when I could see the changes required to offer the church future growth would be confusing and distressing to the members, I persevered. And as we worked together, I came to appreciate their life journey, a lifelong faith journey. And I found that I didn't have to try so hard to love them because I knew them more. And through their sometimes biting critiques of my best efforts, I actually began to hear their fears, their fears that they might be the last generation of this particular congregation. And very soon, I found that I could not help but care for them. Even though we were often at odds with each other, I cared very deeply for them. And even as they struggled with necessary change, I saw gracious people of faith doing the best they could manage and they at the same time began to trust, began to trust me to lead them where they would never have chosen to go. And it was never easy and 
I think if my love had stopped at the point of being an act of obedience to Jesus' command, they never would have learnt to trust me and I never would have been worthy of their trust. So this externalised authority gets internalised and transforms us so that we can operate as if it's us as well. Now, authorities appeal to our interests in a way as well. Perhaps the most persuasive appeal authority makes is to our self-interest. We give our attention to that which we think will benefit us. Kind of makes sense, very reasonable really. Um, Whether we're obeying the law, are there laws that you break sometimes? I know there are, right? Every single person in here has broken the law. Because sometimes it's just, no one's going to notice, it's a small deal, inconvenient to obey the law. We all do it, right? What's going to work? We don't obey big or very noticeable laws because we know we'll get caught and the punishment will be severe. So we weigh that up and go, no, that's a dumb move, I'm not going to do that. But, you know, if it's just a small thing here or there, yeah. Whether we're listening to the insights of science. Like, we all listen to science, don't we? Science is really good. Unless, of course, some of the insights aren't very convenient to us at the time and then we overlook those or think, oh, we'll get back to them eventually, you know. We tend to respond to authorities according to how we assess it will work for us. It's in our interests, it's our interests that shape the lens through which we see, not unlike the way that spectacles work. I remember when I first realised I needed glasses because I would catch the bus home from work. I worked as a graphic artist all day at my desk working. I could see fine. I'd get to the bus stop and the buses would come up the main road and I'd go, is that my bus? Is that my... Oh, yes, that's my bus. (laughs) And uh, just as it zoomed past, I'd realise it was my bus. And I couldn't focus at a distance. And so I needed glasses that would enable me to focus at a distance so I could catch the bus home. Then I became a minister and I would stand up in church and I could read my notes all right, but I couldn't see the people. And then I put my glasses on, I could see the people all right, but my notes were all out of thing. So then I got multifocal lenses. Have you ever had multifocal lenses where you kind of look like this to see where the focus bit is? So the lens helps you get a particular thing in focus and that's what you concentrate on. We respond to people and circumstances and authorities and it is our interests that shape the lens through which we see them all. And particular areas come into focus for us and other bits are just a bit fuzzy and out of focus for us. That's the self-interest appeal of authority. But of course we don't live just on our own, do we? Life isn't all about us, is it? We live in households and communities and a society. Our relationship with authority must hold all of that in consideration as well. So should an authority appeal to particular interests, urging disregard for the good of the community as a whole, this can create a tension. What is our interest? Where is our focus? How are we going to make this work for ourselves and for Everybody else, can we take the wider community into view as well? Are our hearts big enough to embrace all people from all places and all walks of life? Where is our focus? So when one authority holds sway and then another authority challenges it, there will be a clash, and we see that in this story. In another place, in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says, "'No one can serve two masters.'" 
For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. Matthew chapter 6, 24. And he said that in relation to the different priorities of serving God or money or mammon, but it's equally true of any rival powers. When the authority of self-interest is challenged with the authority of love, there is a clash. We're not told much about this person with the unclean spirit, but what we learn from his own mouth is he identifies Jesus as the Holy One of God, so knows who Jesus is, and he feared Jesus' presence would destroy him. So he's not welcoming Jesus, he's fearful of Jesus. And we observe a struggle take place as the unclean spirit departs from the man. It's not quiet, it's not respectful, it's messy and untidy, aggressive and potentially dangerous, but in the end it is done and the man is set free. And it's interesting that the spirit clearly did not want to cooperate with Jesus. The spirit's interest was to expose and repel Jesus, and yet Jesus' authority was such that the spirit finds it impossible not to obey when Jesus says, be quiet and come out of him. And so we need to consider the irresistible nature of Jesus' authority. Because we encounter irresistible authority in a number of relational dynamics, uh, I think. The most bold and obvious is coercion. It's kind of a bit irresistible. Um, It's a very blunt kind of irresistibility. Hopefully we don't experience it very often. It's a use of a force more powerful than our own to make us do what we do not want to do. That's coercion, right? The courts with the weight of the law, police with their special weapons and tactics, councils of the church with their collective weight. These are some of the authorities that might use coercive force to ensure they are not resisted. Consider the imbalance of force used to quash the Hong Kong protests, for example, the might of the Chinese army against unarmed civilians. There was no contest there. Or the force of Putin uh, bringing his army against the protesters at the moment across Russia. You might call that force irresistible on account of it being impossible to effectively stop. But it's a dangerous game because coercion only works up to a point. If it becomes no longer worth someone's while to cower in submission or obedience, coercion loses its effectiveness and more subtle approaches might be required. Which brings us to manipulation. Manipulation, where brute force is kind of obvious and the obvious nature of it actually helps to enforce its forcefulness, manipulation works in the opposite way. Manipulation seeks to hide its power. It is most effective and irresistible when it is not noticed at all. The irresistible power of manipulation is achieved by feeding only selected information to a person or creating a particular narrative in relation to the perceived data. The irresistibility of manipulation is that the person perceives themselves to be making a sovereign choice. They do not notice the strings that are being pulled outside of their field of vision. And this is one of the most dangerous parts of our echo chamber media culture. We consume information we enjoy, like we eat the food that appeals to our taste. But unless we make an effort to maintain a balanced diet, we are at risk of becoming easily manipulated. Balanced diet of information, that is. 
Look how easily a mob could be incited to raid the US Capitol. It appeared as an irresistible force of nature, but even many of those involved are suddenly waking up to what they have done and how they have been manipulated and they feel duped. Like coercion, the irresistible nature of manipulation has its limits too. You only need to be more fully informed to engage some of the information that has hitherto been withheld from you for manipulation to begin to lose its grip and its power to ebb away. So the truly, truly irresistible force that is greater than any other, I think, is the the force that emerges from within us, which is a conviction, yet is not propelled by self-interest. It's called forth by something bigger than just us. Human desire set free from self-interest is most likely the most powerful life-giving force in all of the created universe. And when we come to see Jesus, come to see, sorry, as Jesus saw things, that the best a person can do for others and themselves is to live the life of self-giving love, there is nothing that can resist the power of that authority. As Jesus gave himself to the person with the unclean spirit, he didn't judge the person. There's no judgment in what Jesus does. There's no pushing the person away at all. He comes close and addresses the particular issue. No condemnation. That was the irresistibility of this authority. It was irresistible precisely because the man with the unclean spirit decided he didn't want that spirit anymore and he allowed it to go out of him. See, such things as unclean spirits, to the extent that we understand them at all, reside with people only with the tacit consent of the person. If the host decides they no longer want the unclean spirit, it will leave. The problem arises because the host, wittingly or unwittingly, gains some comfort or benefit from the presence of the spirit, and that's why the spirit is there in the first place. And that is to say that the host has an interest in having the unclean spirit. It's not until the the man moves beyond his own interest and genuinely desires something that has become more important to him than maintaining what was previously considered to be his best interests, that he can be free. I don't know if you followed that. It's pretty complex. But listen back over the tape. (laughs) The person with the unclean spirit must die to his possessed life, as it were, and you hear the struggle to do this, both with that outburst in the story we got read to us by Anne, and also in the story I read to you, where the, the legion say, don't send us too far away. We want to be nearby. It's like going on a holiday. We'll be back soon. We don't want this disruption. But once freed from our fears and self-absorbed ways, there is no going back. This is the irresistible nature of Christ's authority. In a moment, Rev. Robin Davies is going to lead us through the Eucharist liturgy and we will focus yet again on our Saviour, a man who gave himself to us and for us. And Christ bids us to follow him beyond ourselves, losing our lives that we might find our lives in him, to the glory of his name. Let us pray. 
Lord, we thank you for your irresistible authority. It comes from beyond us and it becomes part of us as we internalize it and seek to give ourselves to you and learn to desire the very things that your heart desires. As we break bread together in a moment, come amongst us again by the power of your spirit and transform us to the glory of your name. Amen.